Welcome to series four of the Bold Flavors podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto, a B Corp certified company that loves food, data, people, technology, and the planet. We are currently delivering millions of meals every single week, and our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner. Our purpose is to have positive impact on people and the planet. And each week here on Bold Flavors, I'll be talking to top company founders, CEOs and business leaders about their journey so far, what makes them tick and how they achieve what they're achieving. Today, I'm talking to Jim, Gusto's CFO. Jim has worked at big tech organizations like Amazon and Dell, but also many of Britain's biggest startup successes like Feel Unique, Wiggle and Love Film. And of course, at Gusto, the pinnacle of Jim's career so far. I'm super privileged to work with Jim. And today we're talking about how he stumbled into finance, what's motivating him and some of his biggest CFO nightmare moments. Jim, you have an English literature degree, you edited the student newspaper, and you acted and produced plays. So clearly after university, you decided to become a CFO. The most logical choice. But in, in all seriousness, I'd love to understand what you studied and why you actually decided to become an accountant. Yeah, I'm still trying to work that out for myself, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, I mean... I think it was probably the thing I least wanted to do when I was at university or you know, and when I started out at university because my dad had been a chartered accountant, one of my brothers was as well. And so, and I guess during whatever time that was, you know, there was a kind of stereotype sort of Monty Python sketch about accountants as being like the most boring people on earth. So it was not the sort of thing that one wanted to do. And I guess what, there were sort of two things that led me towards it. One was... I guess I had an aspiration as a student to do something in the kind of creative world, whether that was journalism or probably what I really loved to have done was something on the kind of production side. So I really, when I was at school and when I was at university, I put on some plays, kind of produced and directed those. And that was something that I really enjoyed doing. Although I think when I look back now, that kind of, I guess that process of building something, putting it in front of an audience is, is a bit like, running a small business in a way you've got to kind of bring together a whole lot of resources you know put them together in the, in the right way so but I had really no kind of roadmap for how you got into a kind of career like that and also I did I did once during my school holidays uh, spend a bit of time with the local newspaper and I went out spent a day with a guy you know doing the sort of birth deaths and marriages type coverage that mm -hmm. newspapers at a kind of very local level cover and I thought it would be terrible to spend my life doing that kind of thing and never quite progress beyond that. So <laughs> I was sort of uncertain how you would kind of pursue that sort of thing. And then when I was at university, I ended up becoming editor to the newspaper, the student newspaper, which again was a kind of bit of a surprise thing because I'd done a bit of writing and some articles. And when there was a vacancy for editor, someone suggested me and I hadn't really ever thought about it, but I kind of said, well, I'll give it a go. And what I discovered actually was that I ended up effectively running a small business. Um, mm -hmm. The newspaper had previously been subsidized by the student union. And actually, at the point I took over, they decided they couldn't afford that anymore. So they removed all our funding. So we had to be, become self-funding and exist only on advertising. Wow. So I was left basically running this kind of small business. And I took a couple of, took one decision, which was 
remove the cover price, make it free, we increase our distribution, and then we can go out to advertisers and ask for more revenue on the basis of that. And so every issue that we brought out, I was having to kind of budget for what was our expected revenue, how many pages could we afford to print, how many of those would be ad pages, how many would be copy, et cetera, et cetera. And so I really actually enjoyed that element of it. And so then I thought, if I want to do something sort of business-related after university, I don't really have any expertise in that. I've basically spent three years studying uh, English literature. So I then kind of went back round the houses to the kind of accountancy thing and thought, here's a way I could get some really good training around kind of business and finance. And then, you know, let's see where that takes me. And potentially I could still work in the kind of media world, but from a kind of financial perspective rather than from a creative perspective. And just before we move into the financial aspect um, of what you just described, I have to ask, like, how was it playing in a play? Is that something you would ever consider doing again? I don't know, really. I think I prefer the kind of direction and production to the acting. I was just kind of only semi-good at acting. So probably throughout my school career, I was always in the kind of school plays, but I always had like never quite the biggest part. I think I did. I think I did had one where I was like relatively large parts. So I was sort of like not tiny, tiny parts, but kind of average ones. So it wasn't really something I was very good at, but I was kind of good enough to kind of get by at that, at that kind of level. The one I really remember the most was when I was at university, we put on a play, uh, which we then performed in an art centre in Nottingham. And uh, a good friend of mine was a director and it was a play called Endgame by Samuel Beckett. And basically, I played a, char a character that sat in a dustbin throughout the play and kind of <laughs> popped up from time to time and kind of said strange things. And uh, it was a, an amazing, amazing experience, actually. But uh, you never really want to spend an hour and a half sitting in a dustbin, I can tell you. That's really funny. That's really funny. I can only imagine. And so what was what was then the first job after university and, uh, you know, based on, I guess, the insight from running the student newspaper, trying to pivot away from or, or towards new revenue streams? What was kind of the first job after that? Yeah, it was a very, very dull and boring job. So I joined KPMG or I think it had a different name back then, but KPMG as people know it now as a graduate trainee studying for my exams, did some really, really tedious work for the first year or so. But occasionally you got to do, you know, really interesting things or, or kind of things that kind of tested you, I guess. So very early in my time there, I audited a charity, which was actually the Friends of the Tate Gallery. And I kind of turned up the Tate Gallery and this lady, I was going to say old lady, but she's probably about the same age as I am now, but this lady who kind of ran the charity, you know, gave me this envelope of stuff. And my job was just trying to make sense of that and turn it into a set of accounts. So that was quite a kind of fun exercise. But other, well, I think one of the kind of really interesting things back then was that if you joined a big firm like KPMG, you got exposure to all sorts of different businesses, all different shapes and sizes, different sectors and, and stuff like that. So in my first few years there, I worked on Citibank's mortgage division. I worked on P&O European Ferries down in Dover. I spent weeks and weeks of my life uh, in Dover over a number, of, a number of years. I worked on a business that manufactured lifts. Uh, I audited MCA records in the UK, which was a really interesting uh, audit. So amazing exposure to just like all sorts of different businesses, which was a fascinating kind of way of 
understanding what things you found interesting, what things you found pretty dull. I can only imagine. And so you gained a toolbox. And then since then, I mean, one of the things I find most fascinating about you is how much experience in big and small companies you have. Can you actually list all the companies you've been either a CFO or senior finance manager at? I th I think so. I kind of went, I did it very quickly. <laughs> so I went to the BBC after KPMG and then I worked at Dell. And then I left Dell to join a pre-revenue startup called Net Usability. And while I was at Dell, I also worked for a company called Dell Financial Services, which was a joint venture between Dell and CIT, a, a US, big US leasing company. And then when Net Usability went bust, I worked briefly at Planet 24, which was the company that made the big breakfast show. I then went back to CIT to do some contract work. I joined a company called Property Finder, which I ended up running and selling from Property Finder, I went to Love Film, and then as a part of Love Film being acquired by Amazon, I effectively became part of Amazon. And then from Amazon, I went to Wiggle in cycling, from Wiggle to Phil Unique, which is in beauty, and from Phil Unique to Gusto. So not that many, but it is quite a long journey. Well, it's really, really fascinating. I think on the one hand, you mentioned Dell, BBC, and Amazon. On the other hand, you mentioned Wiggle, Phil Unique, Property Finder. Um, so it's pretty amazing kind of to see, I guess, the differences in these companies. But before we talk about the differences, just talk about Dell and the BBC. And so you're in this like massive, massive company, the BBC. I imagine, I've never worked there, but I imagine things are quite committee-based, relatively slow. And then you're joining Dell. And Dell back then must have been one of the craziest scale-up stories in the world. How, how did it feel? Yeah, it was it was the most incredible culture shock. I, <laughs> I think, I mean, the, the, I mean, the BBC was an amazing place to work for, work at, and you know, amazing organisation does fantastic stuff, full of super bright people, very passionate about what what the organisation does. And you know, for me, the amazing thing was that back in the mid mid to late nineties. John Burt, who was the director general then, you know, instituted a thing called the 10-year strategy. And everyone thought it was just a load of rubbish and something that consultants were driving and didn't really mm -hmm. mean anything. But actually, it was really all about how did the internet, which was like a really nascent thing back then, how would the internet change broadcasting? And mm -hmm. there were sort of concepts that we were talking about. So there was this concept called side channels, which is essentially what now became the red button service on the on the BBC and I guess the proliferation of channels more generally. And, and I worked in for a while in BBC Education, which was a attempt to create this kind of multimedia educational mm -hmm. unit that operated across TV, radio, print, CD-ROMs, which were a thing back then. And we also had these, we had these guys, I think four or five people that sat in a room somewhere and spent a lot of money and they were trying to develop a BBC browser. And you know, there's so much kind of stuff being done at the cutting edge back then. And a lot of that has sort of come to fruition in terms of how the BBC has evolved over the last, you know, 10, 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, so an amazing place to work. But yeah, as, as you describe it, really hard to make decisions, really hard to kind of get consensus around things. And because it was really hard to define what the purpose of the BBC was beyond the kind of educate and entertain and inform kind of level, it was really hard to make decisions because you didn't really have a kind of reference point. So you could come up with a kind of something that might make sense financially, but wouldn't make sense from a kind of editorial content point of view. So 
that meant lots and lots of things need to be debated uh, endlessly. So although it was a great place to work, ultimately, you know, very frustrating. And I reached the point where I thought I could either stay here for 30 years or I need to leave because if I stay here too long, I'll never be employable by anybody else. <laughs> and Dell just came about, you know, through speaking to a recruiter and seemed like a really exciting place to, to go to. I mean, I, I can't quite remember, but I think at that time we were doing about 2 billion of revenue a quarter in, in Europe, which was, wow. the, I was working in the European head office, running the planning process there. And we were growing at 40%. So, you know, every year we were adding, you know, a few billion of revenue to, to the, to the business, which was just wow. extraordinary. Mm. And it was sort of, you know, most of it was B2B revenue. So you had this kind of crazy period at the end of every, and, and, the, and the whole company lived or died around its quarterly results. <laughs> so at the end of the quarter, because these kind of big B2B deals where a salesperson would be speaking to a large corporate, you know, for a deal for, I don't know, a thousand PCs or something. And so all these deals would end up closing in the last few days of the quarter and the factory would <laughs> build up capacity for it. And so the guys that ran the factory would be on the verge of a nervous breakdown every quarter because there was this wave of orders that would suddenly start to arrive and they would be sitting there with the capacity ready to go and going, is it going to come or is it not? And uh, it was it was an amazing place. But yeah, in some level, it was completely chaotic. The systems were pretty poor. It was really hard to get reliable financial information. But a big public company with a share price that was always going up and a big pressure to kind of keep delivering on its targets. So quarter end was always hugely tense and a lot of pressure to deliver the numbers. And did it always go up or did the party stop at some point? So the party stopped around about the year 2000. Mm. Um, I mean, it was amazing when I first went there because people would literally, when, when the markets opened, I think at sort of three o'clock UK time, everyone had the share price on their on their homepage uh, <laughs> on their computers and they would kind of be you know waiting for the share price to go up another dollar you know that day so i think when i first joined the share price was i don't know maybe 60 dollars and within a few months it was like 70 and then it was 18 it was just like wow. it seemed like a way to make money and then it started to go the other the other way growth started to flatten off and it was really interesting because dell was a pretty brutal place to work it was all about execution. It wasn't, no one really cared about how anyone felt because the kind of premise seemed to be you'll make a load of money on your stock options and therefore you'll be happy one day. Um, <laughs> and I, I kind of witnessed, I mean, I, I'm, the, the thing I remember most at Dell was sitting in a meeting, which was a call with the group CFO, Jim Schneider, my boss and, and his boss and me, where we were discussing the end of quarter outlook and, um, Essentially, Jim was like shouting down at the, down the phone at this guy, Nick, on, on our side. And they just had this, this shouting match between each other about how the results weren't good enough. And uh, <laughs> that was the kind of place it was. And you never saw any sort of human resources type person uh, in the business very, very often. And then when the growth started to slow and then people weren't getting those share price gains and therefore, and then people's salary didn't feel quite as good as they did before suddenly there was an emergence of like HR and suddenly it was like, we now we need to be nice to people <laughs> to now mm. because that hook of making money was no longer there. And um, there was, you could sort of feel the gears changing in the organization in terms of trying to go through a cultural change, but actually it was very hard because it just wasn't in the DNA of the organization. 
Hmm. Um, really fascinating. And and just, I guess, stepping away from the BBC um, and Dell, you had so much success over your career, but I would love to focus a little bit on the lowlights and, and really kind of, I guess, sharing some of the toughest moments of being a CFO or a senior finance manager. Yeah, well, probably the worst day of my career would be after I left Dell, I went to work for a company called Net Usability, which was the premise of, of it was that we were developing software to enable e-commerce businesses to do usability testing on their websites. So it was a really great introduction into understanding the internet and, and, and that side of things. I took voluntary redundancy from Dell because the kind of the story I told about Dell continued to the point where cost cutting came along. There was an opportunity to kind of leave with some money in my back pocket and a friend of mine who worked for a VC fund rang me up and said, would you be interested in going and working for this startup that we've just invested in? And I think I was there six months. I joined basically the week before 9-11. Wow. And I can remember 9-11 happening because I just can visualize sitting in a meeting room and we had a service office in Chiswick and I was sitting in a meeting room and one of the guys in the team came in and said, you never guess what's happened. You know, a plane's just flown into the World mm. Trade Center. And it kind of, in the days after that, I guess we sort of realized that it was going to become a lot more challenging to raise the next round of finance that we would need um, to keep the business going and get to the point where we could prove out the business model. So I spent six months pretty much, it felt like all I was ever doing was recutting versions of a business plan to mm -hmm. take to our investors to try and persuade them to give us the next round of money. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they gave us sort of half of what we were expecting. and then. We needed the next half. And finally, there came a day when the CEO and I went to, to a meeting with them and they kind of said, you know, sorry, guys, but we can't give you the next round of money. And so we literally went back to that office that day and told people to go home. And, and we, we had a small office in San Francisco because we bought a business out of administration out in, in the US. And so we had to basically, again, put a call into them, tell them to kind of close the office down. Well. And... I was essentially dealing with both a UK and US liquidation process kind of in my spare time because after that day where we told everyone to go home, I think I did two days of work of trying to get things in order, appoint, appoint somebody to kind of wind up the company. But then I did probably another six months to a year off and on in my own spare time, mm. uh, essentially kind of complete that kind of winding up and make sure that some money went out to creditors, only kind of a small amount, but some money went out to creditors as a result of that. So that was a pretty, I guess, character-forming uh, <laughs> experience. But in, in, in many ways, actually a good one, because when you've been through an experience like that, I mean, A, if I hadn't made that leap from Dell to joining that kind of startup, then I probably would never have done all the jobs I've done since then, because I, I sort of made that leap out of this, you know, the comfort blanket of working in a large corporate. And so, you know, so, I, so I kind of made that step in my career, but also you sort of, to some extent, feel a little bit bulletproof. If you've been experienced that bad, then I think you know, working, you know, you, you obviously know this more than anybody else, but, you know, when you're working in an early stage business, you can see that where the cash might run out in the future. People, a lot of people find that just too stressful. Um, mm. But I think I'm sort of somewhat immune to it because I have been through that worst uh, case scenario. And 
you know, on the whole, there's always a solution, but you know, not always. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I, I always remember um, one of the VCs that invested into Gusto. I had a really good, well, I still have a really great relationship with the partner. And the only piece ever she gave me in terms of advice was don't run out of cash. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I always thought about it. And it's been so hard, to be honest. And um, you know, I had to stop paying myself a salary. Uh, it took me forever to be able to get the salary in the early days. And then I had to stop paying again. And so I, I can really relate to the stress. Yeah, it's really tough. Thank you yeah. for sharing. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, probably this, and kind of probably the second worst experience, which was more prolonged, was I joined a business that had been part of a large corporate, had, was spun out and, and acquired by a VC fund. Um, but it was only just about, well, it wasn't quite breaking even. So were we losing cash? I ended up actually being asked to kind of run the business. And one of the decisions I took early on was to, we had a software company within within the business, which I took the decision to sell, even though it was the it was the only bit of the business that made money, which was kind of good, but it also was the only bit of the business at that time that had some value. So I ended up selling that business to kind of generate kind of cash pot that then bought me enough time to turn around the rest of the company to the point where it was something we could kind of sell on. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had this very precarious existence where we were just about keeping afloat and the finance team got into this kind of routine where the accounts payable team would, would so we had we collected account you know it was a business that b2b business got money from estate agents for advertising and collecting money from estate agents is like a real pain <laughs> i can only imagine 50 100 200 quid a month from these small estate agents and so the accounts payable team i would say you can't make you can't pay any supplies until the the balance and the the, the bank is above a certain level, probably like 50K or something. So they used to badger the accounts receivable team to like get the cash in so they could get the, the suppliers off their back. Um, so they had this kind of great dynamic within the finance team of sort of one team, one of the other ones to get the cash in to pay it out. Um, mm. But yeah, it was pretty it was pretty painful. And I think, you know, we had a sort of 30 or 40 people in the company and I think everyone sort of felt that daily strain but amazingly we you know we had great staff retention because we we created like a really good team spirit around you know keeping the business going and, and making it successful amazing and, and just on the flip side like what would be the most proudest moments you look back on and i'm sure there's so many but just what what kind of highlights come to mind well i like think the last two years augusto have been pretty amazing i never i never expected when i joined the company that later we'd be whatever we are, three, four, five times bigger, particularly when I'm a customer of the company and, and I love the product. It's, it's amazing to think about how many people we're giving that product to you know, every single day of the week. So you know, that definitely ranks pretty high. My t- well, I think coming back to the kind of property finder thing, one, one, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that when I took over that company, we were trying to sell the business. We'd had an offer for three million pounds. It was only kind of small company, but we had an offer for three million pounds we went through due diligence and the, and the buyer pulled out and then we went through another process with another buyer for a slightly smaller amount and the buyer pulled out as well and at that stage I thought I can see why people don't really want to buy this business and so I kind of came up with a plan for how to kind of rectify that and went to the investors and said you know there's these three things I'd like to do that I think could make a difference and they backed me to do that and I think within a year we then sold the business for 15 million pounds, which was like five wow. times what we'd failed to sell it for, you know, a year, wow. months previously. So 
very a very kind of small scale thing, but that's something I always look back on with a lot of satisfaction. You know, there, was, there were lots of positives about my time at Love Film, but actually, one of the thing, one of the kind of things that I always kind of look back on with some affection is that the transition we made from a DVD rental business to a streaming business, mm-hmm. uh, which has ultimately become, you know, was the foundations for Amazon Prime Video. That was a a challenging time trying to transition that business, and also particularly once we knew that Netflix were likely to launch in the UK. So Netflix launched. 10 years ago, actually, in the beginning of 2012 uh, into the UK. And we sort of got wind of that three to six months beforehand. And at that time, we didn't have a sort of standalone streaming package that customers subscribe to because we went oh, through this wow. evolution of starting out with DVD rental. Then as streaming started to become something that you could technically do, we started to acquire some content and then sort of offer this sort of hybrid uh, subscription where you could have DVD rental and streaming and we were trying to build the content library up as quick as we possibly could. And it got to Q4 2011. And at that point, I was responsible for the kind of commercial side of the, the business. And yeah, I said, we really need to make sure that we have our own streaming package before Netflix uh, launch. And we put it live, I think, in mid-December, about two weeks before they came to the market. Um, mm. And that is really interesting because in that 2012 period when Netflix launched, we, we had the most amazing growth uh, because essentially Netflix launching really raised the profile of streaming. And so both companies got, you know, really great traction with consumers during that time period. And, uh, you know, it was a really exciting time. So that kind of the way in which we dealt with their launch and kind of responded to that and then grew successfully alongside them, uh, you know, was a, was a really exciting time. It's so amazing that it's only been 10 years since then. (laughs) I mean, I'm just listening to you. I can't possibly imagine that back then we still had DVDs and Netflix wasn't like a household name. It's crazy. It's it's amazing. I mean, I always laugh because when I started Love Film in 2006, because I had a lot of friends that like worked in media and kind of, you know, thought they were very kind of savvy on this stuff. And they go, why are you joining in like a DVD rental business? You know, that's, that's mm-hmm. going to die. And actually we carried on growing for probably going that DVD rental business for another four or five years beyond that. But it, yeah, it is amazing. And I can remember in 2011, uh, this was after we sold the business to Amazon and Amazon were helping us invest very heavily into movie content and TV content. And the size of the checks we were writing was like huge. And we were trying to, I remember sitting with one of my team and figuring out what level of subscriptions we would need to ever make this business viable. Um, mm. and, and we were kind of looking at it and going, well, whatever we're investing, Netflix are probably investing the same. So they will need the same level of subscribers too. And I think we, we concluded that probably between us, we would need maybe six or eight million subscribers. And that just seemed like a huge number. Mm-hmm. I don't know the latest numbers, but I think pretty much, you know, every household in the UK probably on average has at least one streaming subscription. And, you know, I think I have two or three currently. Um, I think I think the average in the US is now 2.5 or something. Yeah, it's yeah, huge. It's just, it's just kind of bonkers. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the way that has grown just become a completely mainstream thing. And just um, to focus a little bit more on that, I, I, I can only imagine, but one of the toughest decisions must have been the decision to sell to Amazon versus being a standalone business, like take us into the boardroom, into the leadership team discussions, like what happened back then? How did you decide that? Yeah, I mean, it it first came about because I think in about 2007, 
we got contacted by Amazon and said, yeah, we'd like to buy you. And as with all these things, you <laughs> turned down an offer, which turned out to be like, should have been, we should have accepted. But anyway, I can't remember what they offered us, but they offered like a good amount of money to buy the whole business. But we, we basically said no, which is probably a pretty brave thing to do when Amazon come knocking with a checkbook. Um, so the Amazon kind of went away again, and then they came back a little bit later. And, and people may not even remember, but Amazon had their own DVD rental subscription business in the UK and in Germany. So they were Did competitors they? Wow. Uh, for, for us. And they started off doing really, really well. And then they sort of lost, they lost momentum. And I think that it, they just couldn't really focus on it enough to make it successful. So a little bit later on, they came along and said, okay, well, if you won't buy, if you won't sell to us, maybe we could sell you our DVD rental business. And they, they had some like crazy deal. They said, well, you, if you take our DVD rental business and in return, we'll have 40% of your equity. It was like sort of a dragon's <laughs> den scenario. And I think in the end, we, I think we gave them 28% of equity. And they also gave us, I think 10 million of cash and a marketing deal with with their retail sites to kind of use to, as a partnership to get new customers. So we ended up like with a much better deal than they put on the table in the first place. And that was a very complicated deal that involved us then taking over the running of their DVD rental services and then eventually merging them into LoveFilm. Um, so we ended up with Amazon on the board as a roughly 30% shareholder. And it's kind of one of those things at the time it seemed, oh, amazing. We've got Amazon on board and, you know, we've got all their marketing power behind us to help us grow the business. And we've removed a competitor in, in the UK and in Germany. And, you know, all of that was really, really positive. And we probably didn't fully think through the consequence of having Amazon on the board. So we were then thinking about how do we give liquidity to our, you know, longer standing investors who apart from Amazon kind of and management owned the rest of the business. And so we looked at, we were starting to think about IPO um, and I'm probably, I'm probably kind of breaching all sorts of confidential, but I think, it, I think this is covered in, in a book that Brad Stone wrote somewhere. So I think it's probably in the public domain, but essentially we got to the point where we were close to thinking about IPO and Amazon said they wouldn't support that. Um, mm -hmm. So then we had like a very long, painful period where within the board and with the investors, we debated whether you know, Amazon had the ability to block an IPO or not, which legally I don't think they could, but obviously they could have made it difficult for us. Um, mm. So yeah, it was it was quite a, quite a painful period. And then we got to a point where Amazon kind of said, you know, tell you what, we'll buy the business and we'll buy it for this price, which was like way below what our other investors, you know, valued the company at. Um, so we then went through a very, very long process where we started with a high number, they started with a low number, and like each side would chip away um, over a period of kind of weeks and months to to finally to finally end up in a number that was in the middle, which we could have probably done within you know an hour and a half if everyone had put their mind to it, rather than like <laughs> six six weeks or whatever it was. And I I always kind of maintain that it was probably the kind of most expensive negotiation in history because if actually we'd completed a sale earlier, the by the time Amazon had bought the business and sort of got their heads around it and, we, and and then we'd started to think about investment into streaming content there was already you know a lot of expectation that netflix were going to enter the uk market and therefore the price of content escalated as a result and i think if amazon had bought the business more quickly 
we could have done a load of content deals much more cheaply before people were even thinking about Netflix launching mm. and probably saved, I don't know, 50, $100 million um, mm. on content as a result. So the kind of nickel and diming over the price of buying La Film uh, probably ultimately cost Amazon far more than if they just paid the price our investors wanted. It, it was kind of a, one of those things which was very painful to be part of at the time, but you know, fascinating to look back on and reflect on. Well, it's definitely a fun story to listen to. I can only imagine it must have been tough back then. And so, and then you briefly joined Amazon. How how was Amazon like? It was um, it was definitely different. It's an interesting place, Amazon, because it was the first time I'd worked in an organization where you know the the, the kind of management values that Amazon has, you know, really run through deep through the organization. I mean, and, and Gusto has like many similarities in terms of like, you know, how we define our, our ownership principles and how we kind of really kind of live live by them. It's like that at Amazon, although I think it becomes such a large organization that I think it'd be fair to say that, you know, they weren't always lived lived through in the kind of way that maybe was originally conceived by Jeff. But it was very strange going through the kind of transition from being a standalone company where you set your own destiny as, as kind of part of the management team, you know, working closely with the CEO, you know, deciding what we did. You know, ultimately, there's a, you know, a group of half a dozen of us who decided you know, how things worked within the company on a day-to-day basis and, and a kind of small board. So suddenly being told, you know, this is how, this is how stuff happens at Amazon. We had an, I think he was called an integration manager. So within Amazon's kind of M&A team, they have people whose job it is to essentially work alongside recent acquisitions and sort of ingrain them in the ways that Amazon doing things. And it's a fascinating organization because actually, you know, it's so huge and that there are things that are, you know, massively prescribed in terms of how things are done, which in some ways actually it feels painful when you kind of go into that process. But when you look back on it, you go, well, actually, that was a good, that was a good idea. So mm. the whole... Amazon, you know, thing where any new business proposal, you know, there's a standard way in which that must be written down, the thing called a press release and FAQ. So any improvement in terms of a kind of customer proposition, you have to start by writing what would the press release be when you launch that. So writing it from the customer's perspective of how would the company tell that story to the press and describe the customer benefits of what you're doing. And then you have a series of FAQs that kind of then go into the detail of you know, how that would work and what it would cost, et cetera, et cetera. And not having to reinvent the wheel because you know that's a process you've got to follow. The kind of Amazon process of you know, any meeting that's to review something like that, you know, that you have this kind of six-page Word document, theoretically, mm-hmm. can never be longer. And you spend the first probably 20 minutes of the meeting reading the document. So it means you never have to worry about have I read the document before I get to the meeting? Everyone's on, everyone starts from a blank piece of paper and reads it in the meeting. So there's lots of kind of little things like that, which are standard throughout the organization, which they say seem kind of strange and unusual. In fact, I think our integration manager, one of the documents he gave us was something called you know, Amazon's Peculiar Ways. And mm-hmm. uh, you were sort of inducted into, into kind of how things were done. And I think, I mean, and I think the other thing about Amazon was just the kind of sheer uh, ambition that kind of comes from uh, from Jeff downwards, or not Jeff anymore, but at that time came from kind of Jeff downwards. And one of the things I remember most was the, the time when Kindle Fire was being launched. 
the idea of Kindle Fire was, you know, essentially a, a device that then could have all the kind of Amazon services on it. So it would be a, a book e-reader, it would have video, uh, it would have music streaming service. So you'd get all the kind of Amazon services. The only problem was that Amazon didn't have video services in, in very many countries when Kindle Fire was conceived. It had it in the US and it had it through Love Film in, in Germany and the UK, but it didn't have any other, any other countries. And I remember seeing an email from Jeff to kind of my boss's boss at the time saying, when we, when we launched Kindle Fire, video services in like all the countries that Kindle Fire is going to exist in, which was like 12 countries or something like that. And they all kind of replied going, well, I'm not sure we can do it in, you know, these six countries or whatever it was. And Jeff replied, basically just Jeff replied going, going no, no, we need to do it in all those countries. <laughs> and we had a project for quite a long time where we were looking at how could we quickly launch in France, Italy and Spain, which was always called the Fritz Project. Mm-hmm. Um, and we spent ages doing it. And, and the funny thing was, you know, despite that huge ambition to want to have a service in every country, in the end, I think when Kindle Fire went live, we still only had it in UK, Germany, and the US. But I guess what it did do was we really, really tested whether we could do it or not. And so mm-hmm. we kind of set a very high bar for what we wanted to achieve. And ultimately, we didn't succeed. But Jeff's, the way Jeff operated was to kind of really challenge the team around him to deliver the best possible outcome. Really fascinating. And I just want to touch up on, I mean, reading between the lines, you have worked in kind of public founder-led companies. You've worked in private equity-backed companies like Wiggle or Feel Unique. And you've worked in VC-backed companies. It's it's hugely unfair to to generalize, but I like any kind of you know lessons learned or share kind of insights into ownership structures and the impact on culture, on the work in the company? Yeah, no, definitely. And I think, you know, the, for me, the two ownerships that ownership structures that stand out that have, for me personally, been most rewarding as kind of part of a management team are, you know, Augusto and at Love Film. And both are very similar. The only difference at Love Film was that the founder was no longer running the company. But in both cases, we had a diverse shareholder base we had no single shareholder that kind of controlled the business and therefore it was entirely for you know management to propose the strategy and propose the direction of the company and then you know and then to sell that to the investors and take the investors with them and that made the job you know infinitely more interesting it was a huge culture shock when i left love film uh, or amazon as it was then to to go and join wiggle which was a pe backed company with essentially one investor because I might as well have been a divisional finance director in a kind of large corporate because essentially the owners of that company set the direction of the of the company. You know, they didn't really expect me to be thinking about financing. You know, they essentially would deal with that. They really only wanted a finance director who every every day of the week was thinking about delivering the results, you know, which is not a bad thing, but essentially it was a very kind of narrow scoped role And so as a management team in a private equity firm, you're essentially executing against the acquisition plan that the investor bought the business on. And, and they get very unhappy when you stray off that plan. So <laughs> it's quite a kind of narrow, narrow scope, really. And um, yeah, quite, quite unrewarding, which is one of the reasons why I didn't stay there very long. Just to touch up on that point a bit more, I, I, you know, having seen so many different places, what have you actually learned about your own motivation? 
Yeah, and no, I think it's an interesting question. It's taken me a long time to kind of figure those things out. You know, I spent probably the first, I don't know, 10 or 15 years of my career sort of feeling like there must be more to work than what than what I was doing. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I think the thing I learned when I left Dell and, and joined Net Usability as a, as a very small startup was you know, the proximity between what you decide and the outcomes, you know, is what makes, for me, is what makes work re- rewarding that you're, you know, you're actually doing something that you can, you can have an influence on, on events rather than being a very small cog in a, in a large wheel. So that's why since that I've always worked in, you know, I guess smaller businesses. I mean, some of them are very big and Gusto's you know, a very big business, but still has that sense of it. And I guess, you know, I've progressed personally to the point where I can be on the management team of a very big business rather than one that's kind of zero revenue was the kind of first step in that direction. But for me, that that's certainly important. The the second is, you know, although I work in finance, you know, I'm really interested in, in consumer behavior. And so as much as possible, I want to work in a in a B2C business, you know, where you can really think about you know, how do the numbers reflect you know how our customers perceive us and also i get a lot of satisfaction out of working in a business where customers really love what you do and gusto is a great example where you know we're really at the heart of people's lives and, and really making a difference to kind of how people you know as and, and families how they live and what what they eat which is you know amazing thing to part of um so for me that's again really really valuable and then probably two remaining things are you know, working somewhere that's had a great culture. One of the things I often say to people when um, I'm interviewing to, to, to work at Gusto is, you know, I think we have a culture that doesn't tolerate ourselves. If you kind of excuse my language, mm. because I think plenty of big organisations, and I've worked in some, and you know, Dell was a great example. Um, Amazon, to some extent, as well. You know, where if you're great at getting stuff done, and and you cause lots of kind of other impacts around you because you're you know basically trample on the people or you're you're not a pleasant person to work with you know sometimes people can get away with that and i don't really want to work in an organization like that mm-hmm. um, so i think having a, a you know in our case care being as an important value as deliver or dream i think you know, is, is really means a lot to me and i think finally i think when i think about the jobs i've done the what the two that stand out the most in terms of and organizations that I think kind of make a real difference to the world. You know, the BBC was one where I kind of really believed in the kind of values you know, of the BBC and its purpose. And, and Gusto is kind of, you know, similar in terms of, you know, the, the, the goal that we have, which is, you know, we're delivering, you know, for people and the planet. You know, for me, that's, that's a really valuable uh, thing to be, to be working on. So I think all of those things together, and that's, and that's why, you know, I guess, you know, over the years, and when I was at Unique, which had elements of that, but not all of them, but I would often get rung up by people saying, you know, I've got this role, for, you know, would you be interested? And it became so, so frequent in the end that I felt I really needed to sort of, you know, write down for myself what were those <laughs> things I really, really wanted, valued in a job, because it's, I think everyone finds this thing where you can get flattered by, by headhunters who ring you up and try and interest you in jobs, and, and you have to kind of develop a framework for essentially saying no and so what was great when I first got, got called about joining Gusto was I could kind of go yes you know tick 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 you know these are all the things that matter to me you know in a role 
and you know on top of that it was like really close to where I lived as well which is also <laughs> I think you know that being able you know I, I'm always amazed when you, know, you get a call from a recruiter and they go oh I've got this amazing job and it's you know blah 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 and the, the bit they fail to tell you is that you know it's in Stockholm or it's in Luxembourg or something <laughs> like that and you know, personally I don't want to be I've never been one of those people that lets their job rule their lives to the to the extent that kind of it completely disrupts your kind of personal life and mm. as someone who's you know settled in southwest london for a very long time kids at school and everything else i've never been remotely interested in the kind of doing a job that you know takes you takes you away from that you know i i, I made a semi mistake joining wiggle because actually it was a very long commute down to portsmouth every day and i realized afterwards that that wasn't really kind of workable so i think that probably the kind of final point to that is, you know, it has to fit in with your kind of own, the rest of your life, I think, in terms of any any work you do. I lo- love all these points. And I think what I find fascinating is if you interviewed a thousand other people who work at Gusto, most people would mention the things you just mentioned, like, you know, care and one team, uh, putting the customer first and, and working on positive purpose. And so that really resonates and just switching switching gears slightly, we talked about the past, we talked about all the incredible success you had, some of the reflections you had. How will the, the future finance function look like, I don't know, by 2030, 40, whatever the year? But like what, what is kind of shaping the, the finance function of the future? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. I kind of feel it's almost, it's become a slightly outdated question because if I go back in time to kind of earlier in my career, People would always talk about, you know, finance needs to move beyond transaction processing and, you know, be more in, involved in the business. And I think a lot of the improvements in technology have essentially enabled that to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, when I look at the kind of makeup of the finance function in Gusto, um, and I know, we, you know, we, we probably, you know, we've got some way to go on that, but I think roughly half of the team are involved in sort of non-transaction processing or, you know, they're not involved in either processing transactions or producing kind of financial information, but in you know, some form of either planning or analysis of that data or kind of supporting the business and, and kind of making the right decisions. So I think the sort of transition that was often talked about in the theoretical terms, you know, 20 years ago, you know, has progressed a lot. I think there probably are still companies where that doesn't happen, but I think that they're becoming less and less. And, you know, technology will inevitably make that even more kind of possible in that, you know, more and more automation in terms of the kind of the really kind of basic stuff and then really f- allowing people to focus in on, you know, drive, helping drive the business. You know, I think, I, I, I don't think there's kind of a sea change to come beyond that, but I think it, it's a progression of that trend really. Mm-hmm. Makes makes sense. And you love running. And I, I remember before the pandemic, we had an offside. And I feel like I'm in fairly decent shape. I'm exercising every single day. I'm watching my diet. But wow, I was incredibly slow uh, compared to you when we went running. Uh, do you see, I don't know, parallels to leadership, you know, between sports and, and business, I guess? How, how important is running for you? Yeah, I mean, it, it's something that I've done off and on since I was a teenager. 
I think there's two things to it. One, it's a, it's a great way to just kind of not empty the brain, but I guess sort of process things in your brain because it's the kind of that rare moment, particularly these days, where you're away from your phone, you're away from your laptop, and therefore you're kind of left with yourself and your thoughts. And it's, I find it just a great time to sort of think about either nothing or something, but, you know, it, it's, it's kind of really, really good kind of personal time from, from that perspective. And I think, yeah, in terms of thinking about something like running, you know, I haven't, I haven't, the last time I ran a marathon was in 2016, but, you know, it's very much, you set yourself a goal, you, you map out the steps towards achieving that goal. And then you kind of go through the process and, and, you know, you see steady improvement as you kind of commit to the training that you need to kind of to, to achieve what you want to achieve. So I think it's a really great example of how, you know, a great plan, real focus and hard work can, can deliver kind of great outcomes. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've run, I think, I don't know, five or six marathons. The last one I did, I don't think I can ever improve on because I know that I kind of executed the plan that I had really well. <laughs> and even though I was older and you know, I'd run marathons in my 20s quite a lot slower, but I just didn't, you know, commit myself to them in the, in the same way. And so I think you know, one one of the observations I see in sport is that it's not always like the the most talented people that make it to the top, it's the ones that have the talent, but also you know, have the commitment and the kind of process that goes with it. In actual fact, I'm just the moment reading a book by uh, a guy called Bob Bowman, who was Michael Phelps's coach. And, mm. uh, it's called uh, 10 Steps to World-Class Excellence in Your Life and Work. And it's basically, he's describing the sort of key elements to his kind of training program and kind of how he went through that journey with Michael Phelps when he was a kid through to being an amazing Olympian and then sort of draws parallels between that and kind of how you can sort of take those learnings into the kind of rest of your life. So he's probably, he probably can tell the story better than I can, but I think it's a great parallel between kind of sport and and kind of excellence and kind of other things that you do. Yeah, I definitely see it in, in very similar ways. Jim, thank you so much for today. You are an absolutely incredible leader. I love the humility, the low ego, the experience you have. And it's been a huge privilege to scale Gusto with you for the last couple of years. So a massive, massive thank you. That's been been fun chatting. Really enjoyed it.